A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we end our mini-series on maritime China with an episode on the maritime Silk Road. Now, you may think that this is a fairly straightforward subject. Its name implies it was a maritime route by which silk was transported abroad from China. But as you will discover today, it is far, far more complicated than that, and I think far more interesting as a result. It's a topic that links us with Asia and Europe's deep past till right up to the present day and to China's strategic global positioning. I'm lucky to have sailed on a number of the routes we discuss for a National Geographic documentary, down the coast of China, past Vietnam to the Gulf of Thailand, onto Singapore and beyond to the Malacca Straits and then out into the Indian Ocean and the numerous trade routes that open up. And so I was particularly pleased to balance my practical experience with a bit of proper education by talking with none other than Tansen Sen, Director of the Centre for Global Asia and Professor of History at New York University in Shanghai. He specialises in Asian history and religions and has special scholarly interests in India-China interactions, Indian Ocean connections and Buddhism. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is a man who has truly met the considerable challenge of understanding how different nations and cultures interact in both past and present. It's the far-sighted Tansen. First of all, Tansen, let me say thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Sam. Uh, it's great to talk to you about maritime history. So the, the Maritime Silk Road, the phrase the Maritime Silk Road is, is surprisingly complicated, what do you think it refers to? I think it's, it's a creation, it's a constructed idea that uh, comes from the Silk Road idea that was invented by this German ge- uh, geographer uh, in the 19th century. And, and it became very popular, especially among the Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, and they wanted to recreate that in the maritime world, uh, which I argue is perhaps not appropriate because uh, the maritime world is hugely complicated and perhaps no one term really uh, can define it because it's not just silk uh, that was being traded. There were many other commodities and many other things going on. Uh, and the fact that it was a route is also very complicated because there are many segments uh, and, and routes across the Indian Ocean. So 
South China Sea, East China Sea. So uh, I think that's why it's a constructed term, trying to bring everything together. But uh, it really comes out of this, uh, I would say, nationalist idea, both uh, in Japan initially and then in China, to connect themselves to the larger Indian Ocean world. Mm. What sort of period did that happen? When did the Japanese and the Chinese decide to kind of do this? So it started in the 1960s by this Japanese scholar called Misugu Takatoshi, uh, who actually uh, traveled uh, the other direction uh, that you were traveling in your trips. Uh, He traveled from Japan to Turkey. Uh, Mm. And during his voyages uh, uh, all the way to Turkey, he saw Chinese ceramics. uh, And he later became uh, one of the leading experts on Chinese porcelain. And he, in 1965, created this term initially in Japanese, but then translated into English uh, as the Maritime Silk Road. So he pointed out in his book, published in 65, and later he was part of the NHK filming of various kinds of maritime-related documentaries, uh, that it's not just about silk, uh, because he himself was a scholar of, of ceramics, but he said that this is one way of propagating this idea that there is something that connects the maritime world. Uh, So he was the person who I I have argued invented this term, uh, maritime silk road and the concept behind it. Uh, But in China, it comes about in the 1980s uh, and the Chinese scholars, uh, one in particular called Chen Yan uh, from Peking University, uh, who then coined this term, not knowing that the Japanese had already started talking about it. So for him, he was the one who was inventing it. Uh, for him, uh, this guy was a Burmese scholar. He, he studied Burmese language, Burmese history. Uh, and he was interested in looking initially at the route that connected China to India through Burma. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, before he started using this term Maritime Silk Road, he actually coined this term called the Southwestern Silk Road, which connected China to India through Burma. Uh, And then in 1981, uh, he became interested in the maritime world. uh, And at a very important conference, uh, he then proposed uh, this uh, term called Maritime Silk Road uh, in 1981. Mm. And how did the sort of politics of China in the 1980s affect this? Because there's a, a growing sense of national identity and it all kind of builds from this period, doesn't it? Yeah, it's quite interesting because 1981 is just a few years after China started opening up. So uh, the Chinese leader, Tan Xiaoping, had uh, proposed this open door policy. uh, And one of the parts of this open door policy was to connect with the maritime world. Uh, And and so the the idea of of the maritime road then became very closely connected, especially among intellectuals first and then in the mid 80s among the Chinese politicians about China going out uh, to the seas. Uh, and, and that became part of ways in which they created this narrative that going out is something good uh, and, and Maritime Silk Road is harmonious, peaceful, and China, uh, when it's going out, is not a threat. So it became a way in which to project uh, the soft image of, of China as it engaged with the world after the Cultural Revolution uh, ended and the open door policy uh, started. So you, we see in the literature uh, uh, when the open door policy is usually discussed, the Maritime Silk Road will be brought up as a way in which China is connecting to the larger world. It's interesting that the Chinese were then 
um, looking back to a, an earlier period of the Chinese, I'm thinking of the Zhong He voyages yes. here, going out and exploring the world. Do you think that they cared about how accurate their understanding of history was? No, I think that that never was the case. I, I think uh, uh, accuracy was was problematic. Uh, but uh, the linking of, of the Maritime Silk Road to Chunghe actually starts when they celebrate the 580th anniversary of the voyages, which took place in 1405 and continued until 1433. Um, and, and it was a way in which to say that at one point, uh, China was a maritime power, but the power part was different from what the European colonizers did. Uh, China, according to them, in, in the 15th century, really did not occupy, colonize uh, the places that Chenghe, this Ming dynasty admiral, went to. So uh, China was a maritime power, but used the power to create diplomatic uh, engagements with, with the Indian Ocean world uh, rather than use military power. And the Maritime Silk Road was a depiction of that kind of a harmonious Chinese way of connecting to the world. So, yes, since 1985, Zheng He and the Maritime Silk Road became really very much entwined uh, in the narratives, both by the state and by the intellectuals. Mm, it's fascinating, isn't it? How does the relationship fit now between China's political ideas and the history trying to back it up? Do you academics have to kind of fit into this awkward position? Yeah, I, I think especially with the Belt and Road Initiative, it has become more integrated into the state narrative uh, of China's maritime engagements in the past and the present. Uh, so uh, th that's the reason why when we are talking about the narrative, uh, the historical narrative of Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which includes uh, the Zhenghe voyages, it includes the use of maritime Silk Road, the uh, attempts to create it as a world heritage uh, listing, a shared world heritage thing, we have to be very careful about it because the use of historical narratives, and I've argued with the case of Cheng He himself, that these voyages were actually not that peaceful. We see evidence of use of military power. Uh, almost every expedition, and, and he went on seven expeditions, carried about 20,000 plus soldiers some of the, the most advanced weaponry, some of the largest ships, uh, and there are records of, of uh, Cheng He and, and his soldiers engaging in uh, actually changing regimes. Uh, that happens in Southeast Asia, it happens in South Asia. So, you know, if we as historians look at those voyages, uh, then uh, we have to point out uh, the Chinese historical records themselves indicate uh, otherwise, that these voyages were not all peaceful and harmonious. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up the Belt and Road Initiative. That's clearly such an important part. And yes. it's a slightly confusing name, isn't it? Because the road in the Belt and Road Initiative refers to the sea and yes. the belt refers to the land. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, tell us about... Um, I suppose that the the pressure on historians that arose from this sudden the arrival of the Belt and Road Initiative because it's a new phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so so it's it's a, a hugely economic uh, of uh, agenda of the state, right? So twenty thirteen, when uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping started this, actually he started with the Belt uh, idea. So it was initially one Belt, one Road uh, that he proposed first in in Central Asia, and then. 
uh, the road idea he proposed in Indonesia the same year. Um, and, and at that point, the narrative was not clear what exactly this this initiative was. Uh, and gradually it became from one belt, one road to belt and road initiative. Yes, the belt was this economic belt uh, that uh, that existed uh, across the, let's say, the step, step route and the silk roads, the land uh, silk roads. Uh, the road, I think, uh, most likely he was talking about the maritime silk roads road, all right. Um, so, so I think that's how uh, the the word came about, right? Why the road? Because the maritime silk road idea, the term, had already existed before twenty thirteen, uh, and it did not make sense uh, beyond uh, China's economic uh, uh, policy at that time, twenty thirteen, which became a political uh, policy as well, because this was uh, not going to the U.S. as such; uh, it was going to Africa. Uh, and, and later on to Europe, uh, Japan was not involved. So it became a hugely political issue. Uh, and then in, in order to address that political uh, issue, the Chinese started bringing in culture. So it became economic, political, and cultural aspect that now are three important, uh, you can say, legs of Belt and Road uh, Initiative. It's fascinating, isn't it? So you've got the politicians who have their own uh, concept of history, which they use to their own ends. Then you've got academics who are being a bit more cautious and saying, whoa, we need to actually talk about what really happened. What about everyone else? Do the Chinese have a keen sense of their own maritime history or not? Yeah, so so they have. But before I go and, and, and talk about that, uh, I should point out that it's not just about the Chinese, you know, uh, this book called 1421 that Gavin Manzis wrote, uh, which argued that the Chinese had discovered the world. Uh, and, and this is totally a made-up history, uh, which was designated, uh, unfortunately, as a nonfiction by the Library of Congress. And Gavin Manzis made a lot of money uh, uh, propagating that idea, which is totally useless. Uh, but that got accepted in many places, including by the Chinese leadership initially. Right, so it's it's not not just uh, the Chinese uh, uh, government or the Chinese scholars uh, who are using their ways of looking at history to construct something they want to propagate, uh, but it's others as well. And there are uh, various disciples of Gavin Manzis uh, running around arguing that the Chinese went to uh, U.S. before uh, Christopher Columbus did uh, discovered the entire world. Um, so 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 that that I think is is a caution that we should have. Uh, you see in my background, there's a 1421 uh, book there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have one so... by my desk as well. I have one by my desk as well. And uh, whenever, I, whenever I want to entertain myself, I read all about dogs, dogs in, in, in Brazil or something, and how, how that proves the Chinese came. Yeah. So, so I, I think this, this, is, uh, this is an issue that, uh, 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 that we have to be aware of and, and point out as historians that, you know, there are problems in the interpretation. That's what the historians do. And we are not always right. We have to acknowledge that interpretation continues, right? People come up with new sources uh, and there are uh, uh, new ways of looking at uh, the maritime history. And the Chinese were aware uh, of that. Um, but it becomes complicated in China because of the colonial experience that the Chinese had since the Opium War, which was a maritime engagement between China and the colonial powers, the British in particular in, in the 1839-40s. Uh, so their uh, concept of maritime history, you can say, comes from that kind of, of engagement 
with the colonial power. So when they look back uh, at their maritime history, uh, they are thinking about the 19th century experience. But, you know, uh, there are other Chinese scholars who are looking at archaeology and, and what kind of evidence there is uh, with regard to the maritime engagement. And, and initially, there's very little. Uh, and uh, because China was mostly engaged with the northern parts of, of, of their uh, empire, Central Asia, uh, Mongolia. Uh, and, and so the Chinese engagement with uh, the maritime world actually starts uh, in around 1000 CE, when the Chinese start developing their own ships uh, that can go into the seas. Uh, and, and and that is something that they recognize, but still there is a view, uh, and, and this is part of the nationalist way of, of uh, creating this 5,000 years of Chinese history uh, idea within China that no, China has been engaged with the maritime world with their ships long time before that. Um, and this is something that has been ingrained into the Chinese scholarship, and it's very difficult to argue, uh, even with Chinese scholars, that you know you can't really say that because the evidence of Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean is totally lacking, right? Hmm. So we don't see Chinese ships arriving in India, for example, uh, before 1000 CE, uh, same in Southeast Asia. And, and then it relates to the shipbuilding industry in, in China as well. Did the Chinese really have the technology to build ocean-going ships? Uh, as you know, these ships are constructed very differently. The wooden planks are very different uh, because of the salty waters of the oceans. So where did that technology come from? And it's clearly Southeast Asian influence uh, that results in the building of, of these ocean-going ships that happens in the 10th, 11th century only. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. It's interesting talking about that area, particularly the Indian Ocean, because the narrative we often get is so China centric. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and whether it's fair? It's, it's not fair, but, but I think we, we understand that because it's not just China, again, that does it. 
Uh, other countries have done it. Oman, for example, does it very often. India does it, that the long history of, of its maritime heritage. Uh, and, and I think China has been good in, in doing that for one particular reason, which is they have lots of historical documents, unlike, let's say, Oman or, or India, uh, because their historical documents go back to the pre-common era times. Uh, and then you can find records of Southeast Asia. I and mean, the information is most likely coming from uh, foreign travelers, foreign traders, but they have nonetheless uh, records. Uh, and, and those records are what you know scholars have to really look at and interpret. And you can't take those records on their face value. That's that's what historians have have to do, is to not not just read the 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 records, but try to analyze, uh, deconstruct those those records. And once you start deconstructing those records, then you can see the problems in the records, even though they are huge in number, right? Um, so so I think uh, those who lack a knowledge of classical Chinese perhaps would be stuck with one kind of interpretation that uh, people are making and are not looking at the original sources and trying try to decipher what those records uh, indicate. But uh, one of the reasons, as you said, for the China, uh, China-centric views of the maritime world is that they have the records uh, and, and, and they can use it uh, to play that, that role of, of uh, Sinocentrism and say, look, we have the records and we think this is the way. Uh, and this became an argument actually between Chinese scholars and Japanese scholars with regard to the maritime Silk Road idea because uh, the person who invented this term in China, Chen Yen, uh, would say, why are the Japanese interpreting our sources? Uh, we Chinese have the sources. We should be writing the history of the Maritime Silk Road and not the Japanese. Um, so Japanese also read Chinese characters. So they were the ones not only reading it, but also interpreting it. So it's very interesting to see how the Japanese interpretation of same sources differ from how the Chinese were, were doing it. Uh, and, and this combination that I mentioned earlier between what was happening in China politically uh, and this idea of, of uh, maritime silk road uh, propagated by Chinese intellectuals became so intertwined that the Sinocentrism idea uh, concept really took off from that because these intellectuals also wanted China to open up. I think it's fair for us to say that it's unlikely that we are suddenly going to discover some new ancient Chinese or Japanese sources which are going to change our perspective on all of this, which suggests to me that the future battleground over this is going to be maritime archaeology. Yeah. Is there is there a sense of that in yes. the, the maritime community? Yes, uh, and, and you know, uh, a part of the Belt and Road Initiative is to invest in maritime archaeology, and, 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 and the Chinese have really developed maritime archaeology also since the 1990s, and, and they realized that as part of their argument on the Maritime Silk Road, which said, you know, Chinese were there first, uh, and, and, and the Chinese were visiting different places in the Indian Ocean, they think maritime archaeology is what can provide them the evidence so one of the things they have been doing in Kenya, for example, uh, actually the whole Eastern African coast, is trying to find the ships that belong to Cheng he. Uh, And with all the records that we have about Cheng he, we do not have any evidence about his ships. Uh, and, and, and so one of the uh, things that the Chinese government 
has been doing is to invest a lot of money in maritime archaeology. And, and you would know this because states lack funding for maritime archaeology. It costs a lot. Um, but the Chinese government seems to have that money to invest in maritime archaeology. And on one hand, uh, this has really helped uh, the field of maritime archaeology in, in China. But on the other hand, it has, ha again, become very much part of the Chinese nationalism, China-centric China ideas of the maritime world. Uh, it is being done to promote the idea that the Chinese were engaged in the maritime world from early on. So you see this in a number of different places. You see it in South China Sea as well, where it's connected to uh, the issue of sovereignty, uh, territorial claims and, and so forth. So in South China Sea, you have a number of different shipwrecks. Um, and many of these shipwrecks have Chinese goods, porcelain, for example. But the ships themselves were perhaps constructed elsewhere uh, and perhaps run by people who are not Chinese. Uh, but the Chinese government has claimed that if the uh, if the commodities in the ships are Chinese, it's a Chinese shipwreck. Um, so, you know, wow. this, this this becomes a whole issue about whose ownership here uh, about the underwater archaeology. So UNESCO has been dealing with this. Whose heritage, right? I mean, uh, if you have a shipwreck, uh, and, and this is a controversial issue with uh, UNESCO, uh, who can then claim uh, uh, this uh, shipwreck that is discovered in South China Sea? Right. Uh, so, uh, so I think I think that gets into a complicated issue uh, about uh, heritage making, uh, claim to territories, creating new narratives of history. So I think it's it's a maritime archaeology, underwater archaeology, is very very interesting. I think going forward. Yeah, you mentioned Kenya. Um, I've actually been to Malindi and I've uh, uh, dived on a wreck uh, which was supposedly. Chinese, but it was not. It was Portuguese. They yes. discovered it was Portuguese um, shortly after they thought it was Chinese. Um, so Africa is obviously a hotspot that clearly matters. Um, is there a kind of a, a ranking of important places for the Chinese to prove that they identify with? I'm thinking of maybe Cambodia or whatever it might be. Do you, do you get a sense of that yeah. priority? Oh, clearly South China Sea is, is priority number one. Uh, and it's not just uh, Cambodia, uh, but also the maritime world of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines. Uh, the, this part, because it, it overlaps with, uh, you know, the, the territorial claims and disputes with Vietnam, with Philippines. Um, so, yes, South China Sea, which is right next to the Chinese coastal region, uh, is priority number one. Right. So uh, then you move to the Indian Ocean world uh, and, and that extends uh, from uh, eastern coast of Africa all the way uh, to India and, and beyond India, uh, reaching South China Sea. But in the eastern coast of Africa is, I would say, number two, uh, because they they are trying to reach out to that faraway land, connect to Africa both economically and politically. So again, this idea that uh, China is not a threat, we are harmonious, peaceful, uh, we can help you with, with archaeology. Um, so it, it's, it's a public diplomacy kind of a thing they are doing. Uh, in, in Africa. And then, then the third, I would say, uh, is around India. So Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Burma, Bangladesh, uh, I, I think they are trying to develop some kind of archaeological aspect there as well. Uh, and more interestingly, I think, is what they are trying to do in Saudi Arabia with the Middle East also. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they are funding various archaeological uh, programs in Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf. 
uh, and, and I think that has to relate to the Islamic countries, uh, oil uh, as, as a resource. Uh, but it's, it's very well integrated, I would say, the political agenda, the economic agenda and the cultural agenda uh, of the Chinese government. Yeah, it was interesting what you're saying about the Persian Gulf. I think that's that's really going to change because the one thing that we all know is going to happen is that the oil is going to run out at some yeah. point. Yeah. And tourism is a really important source of money to replace that, which yes. means there's a a real focus on those areas who have a significant history. It's fascinating history yes. all around there, going back to the Neolithic. Um, but a lot of the maritime world has been very little explored. Do you know of any work going on there in the maritime world at the moment? Uh, in the Persian Gulf, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a number of, of pe uh, people studying both archaeologies, starting from, you know, Oman uh, outwards. Oman has been also investing uh, money on, on uh, maritime studies. Uh, and and, uh, and Yemen, which before the conflicts there, I think was quite important as far as the Hadrami network was, was concerned. So there's a scholar at Duke uh, called Enseng Ho, uh, who really mapped uh, the Hadrami network from Yemen to Southeast Asia. Uh, and, and that kind of study uh, on that region uh, uh, it has been going on by different scholars looking at the art historical part, the archaeological part. Saudi Arabia is also interested in looking at its own maritime heritage. So one, one thing the Chinese uh, have done is, is has made uh, all these countries interested in their maritime heritage. How do they connect to the Chinese maritime Silk Road? Here, uh, let let me uh, the Chinese government would say, let us let us have this exhibition about how Saudi Saudi Arabia connected to China, and we'll do the exhibition in the Persian Gulf in China, so that you know you understand your heritage as well, uh, and how you are connected to the maritime Silk Road. So you, they do that in in Sri Lanka. So these kinds of exhibitions, uh, performances are a very important part of bringing other nations into this narrative of the maritime Silk Road because they are offering their own maritime heritage uh, as well. So Oman does it, Saudi Arabia does it. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's an interesting way of connecting from the other side to China. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful place to leave it. Uh, Tantan, thank you very much indeed for your time. Fascinating. I'm definitely going to come back to you and talk to you again. Sure, sure. And, and let me know when you're coming to... China and then we can get you to Shanghai. Now, thank you all so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, do please check out our other episode on Maritime China. We've explored a fabulous number of topics. My favourite, I think, being the episode in which I interview Arthur Jones, a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's also the director of The Six, a documentary made about the six Chinese survivors of the Titanic disaster. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. You can find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where I would encourage you all to join up. It's a fabulous way not only of finding out all about maritime history from the very best in the business, but it's a brilliant way of meeting people with similar interests. Now, the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History and Education Centre are up to all sorts of wonderful projects. Most recently, they're a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's called Maritime Innovation in Miniature, and we've been filming the world's best ship models using the very latest camera equipment. It's absolutely astonishing. Best way to find that is simply to Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And we'll be back soon. Cheerio, guys.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.